I mentioned last week that I really, 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 really don't like not preaching on the readings, and especially, you know, it's one of my favorite gospels, and when you, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, don't let your hearts be troubled, and realizing that in the church full this morning, there's not a one of us that doesn't have a spot in their heart that's not troubled, and wanting to speak into that, but the good news is that this gospel came up two times during the week, and so I preached on it on Wednesday and Friday, so you can go on YouTube and watch the homily from those two days to hear the antidote to our troubled hearts, which Jesus gives us in the gospel. But the reason why we're deviating, this is week two, if you're with us last week, we're deviating from the readings to, to speak into what the bishops have called for in the United States, and that is for a Eucharistic revival. So we started that off last week and mentioned the fact that 70% of Catholics, under their own admission, they say that I'm Catholic, and they say that they don't believe that Jesus is uh, truly present, that the, that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. 70% of Catholics don't believe that. The startling thing, and even more startling thing for me, and I think the church in the U.S., is that the younger you go, as we saw, the younger you go, 40 years and, and younger, that percentage goes from 70% to 80%. 80% of Catholics, 40, ages 40 and younger, don't believe in a central teaching of the Catholic Church. And we mentioned last week that it's not a symbol, that the body or that the bread and wine really truly become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And even with that, this past week, whether it was through an email or somebody coming up to me, someone came up to me and said, well, Father Mark, that was, uh, you know, been Catholic my whole life. That was a very, you know, uh, interesting homily. I really enjoyed it. Um, but then she said, but, but it's really, everything you said, but it's still really just a symbol though, right? You know, so, but no, but no, that's, no, but that, 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 because it is a mystery and it's hard. It's why, you know, what I want to do this week is I want to look this week at some things. I want to show you things that we do to show that at, at the liturgy, that's part of the ritual. Last week we looked at the power of ritual, but things in the liturgy that show that we really believe that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, that it's not just a symbol. The first, first thing, you know, the, the first thing we do after we come in the church and bless ourselves with holy water, reminding of our baptism as we come in and before we enter a pew, we genuflect on our right knee. We genuflect on our right knee, not just to nothing, not just to, because that's what we do before we enter the pew or exit the pew. We do it intentionally. And really, we should turn slightly and genuflect to the tabernacle. Because genuflection, what we do with our bodies, external signs help our interior disposition. What we do with our bodies means something. So if I shake your hand out in the piazza after mass today, it means, you know, hello or have a good rest of the day. We do that with our body. When we genuflect and we get on our knee, on our right knee, and it hits the floor, it's a sign of wonder, it's a sign of reverence, it's a sign of, um, uh, of awe, and we, it's a sign of adoring. And we adore Jesus. We, we're not adoring a piece of wood, we're adoring who's in there, and it's a person. It's, it's, a, it's the living God, Jesus, who's present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. So, and encourage you, when we genuflect, with our eyes, when we genuflect, to look at the tabernacle. 
and to say in our heart a prayer, hi, Jesus, or as we leave, by Jesus, I love you, as we genuflect on our right knee. By the, by the tabernacle, you'll notice a, a sanctuary candle. A sanctuary, by every tabernacle, you have a perpetually lit sanctuary candle. And it is always burning. There's a couple times of the year when the, when the tabernacle is emptied, when Jesus isn't in there, and then you won't have a, a sanctuary candle will not be lit. Now, it doesn't have to be red, but oftentimes we will find it as red. One thing, red is, you know, color red is pretty. But also, when you're out on the roadway and you see the color red, what do you do? You stop. And so before and after mass, when the liturgy is not going on, if we're to walk past the tabernacle, this red sanctuary lamp is, 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 is to tell us we should stop and we should genuflect on our right knee and adore the Lord because Jesus is present in the tabernacle. If we can't genuflect and our knee can't hit the floor, we can do a profound bow at the waist. Another thing, an, uh, just an, an external sign that points to the fact that we truly believe that it's really Jesus present in the blessed sacrament that the bread and wine really become the body and blood of Jesus. This is called a corporal. And this one hasn't been used yet, so I'm handling it kind of not as gingerly as we would, but normally they are kept in a, in a burst. And you'll notice at this liturgy, Deacon Tim will come and he will very gingerly and carefully open the corporal. A corporal is a Latin word for corporal, sounds like corpse. The corporal's job is, is open very carefully is to catch any fragments from the host. If it's to the naked eye that I can see part of the host, a little crumb, it's the body of Christ. And so very carefully, the corporal is set out. And then at the end of the liturgy of the Eucharist, the deacon or myself will, in a very certain specific way, fold the corporal in a certain way so that it's open in the same way that it's not, we don't, we don't take the corporal and put it out on the altar like this because that defeats the purpose of a corporal. We take very much care and even the smallest of, smallest of fragments or particles of the host that might come off, especially during the fraction, right? When I break the host at the mass, little particles fly all over the place. Next thing is a chalice veil. What do we veil? We veil things that are beautiful. We veil things that are mysterious. We veil things that are life-giving. So the, the, the chalice is, is veiled. It's protected for what is going to, of what it's set aside for, that the precious blood, the patent. And when the veil is removed, going back from the Old Testament, the, 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 the temple there was a small part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was called the Holy of Holies. And separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a veil, which the priest only one time a year would go into. But we know when Jesus died on the cross, the temple was, or the veil was torn from top to bottom. But in the liturgy still, when the veil is removed, it's an indication for us that we're about to enter into the mystery. And we can prepare ourselves that we're about to enter into the mystery of the mass. And one, one other thing that I think the point that I forgot to mention with regard to genuflectin, in the beginning of the mass, you'll notice the deacon and myself will come and we will kiss or reverence the altar by kissing it. 
Boys and girls, when you're at home and your parents, um, you know, before they put out dinner on, your, on the dining room table, do you kiss the table, right? Or do you, when you're done with your homework in class, you kiss your desk? No, it'd be silly. But boys and girls, this isn't a table. This is an altar. What happens on altars? Sacrifice happens on altars. Blood happens on altars. Things die on altars. And so the sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago in an unbloodied way is going to be represented on this altar. And so we reverence and we kiss the altar which the sacrifice is going to, where the sacrifice is going to take place. Getting back to my props here. Chalice. If you're holding this, it'd be heavy. As you're looking at it right now, you say it's beautiful. It's lined in gold, or it's made out of 100% sterling silver and then lined in gold. It is set aside, it's consecrated to be used for a specific person, set aside for a specific reason, and it's precious because of what's precious that's gonna go in it, the precious blood. Now, could you use a, a red Solo cup? Like, would it get the same job done? Yeah, like, it would serve the same, it would, it would get the job done. See, but it's not fitting to use a red Solo cup because I would never fill this up with water and just drink out of it. This is set aside for the precious blood and it's lined in gold because of what is gonna go, what is gonna go in it or who is gonna go in it. This is called a pall. A pall, you'll notice, goes on top the chalice. If you've ever been asked to be, to carry a casket for a friend or a family member for a funeral, what do you call, what, what do you call them? Pallbearers. You ever wonder why? Well, at the beginning of the funeral, at the baptismal font, a big old pall is placed over the casket. Pall means a covering. The pall is placed on the chalice, it's a practical reason, is to, to keep what incense, when we use incense, what goes up, incense goes up in the air, it will eventually come down. And we don't want that in the chalice. We don't want that to get in with the precious blood. There's also, you know, I've served mass at other churches before where there's, there's, there's gnats, there's big old fruit flies. There was a couple years ago when I was celebrating mass and a, and a big old bug got in the chalice after the consecration. I can't just pick up, pick the bug out and flick it on the ground because it already has precious blood on it. So I had to drink it, right? <laughs> the kids are like, ah! <laughs> the Paul, an external sign, an external sign. So you don't see bugs here going on. There may be some small ones, but still, nonetheless, we still use it, why? Because it's an external sign to help the interior reality of what it is that we're, what it is that's taking place, of who it is that we have an opportunity to receive in a little bit. Everybody's either the least favorite thing about mass or most favorite thing about mass. You either hate it or you love it. And that's, this is a thurible. And what goes in it is incense on hot coals. And it produces, you either love it or you hate it, smoke. And I especially, when I have servers, I especially 
use it very intentionally at the point of mass of the consecration, when the server is right in front, is can you see more clearly or less clearly when there's smoke coming up at this point? Less clearly. Smoke blurs the vision. I can't quite see everything. It, it, it's fogging things up. Like, it, it doesn't quite... Because it's a reminder, it's an external sign of an interior, of the reality that's taking place and hope to help us internally realize like, I, I can't quite grasp what's going on. I, God isn't somebody that we can just grasp in at all in general. And the smoke is this external sign to help us. And the book of Revelation in the Bible talks about the angels with the gold thurber at the altar with smoke rising up. As we see the smoke, it can help us have elevate our, our, our prayers, that our prayers are going up to God here in the sacrifice of the mass. And lastly here, bells. Beyond just sounding pretty, bells are used at three specific points during mass. Why? Well, because we're human and we can easily get distracted all the time during, during the liturgy. You can have your brother and sister there nudging you and annoying you. Like you could be easily get distracted, easily get annoyed. When you hear the bells the first time, it's pay attention. Okay, you were, you were straying a little bit. Okay, that's fine. That's normal. That's natural. That's going to happen. The bells go. The epiclesis, meaning the, down, the priest is now calling down the Holy Spirit at this point. The bells are rung the first time when the host is shown after it's been consecrated and you have the first opportunity to adore Jesus who's present here in the blessed sacrament. And as the chalice is raised, the cup of salvation, the bells help get our attention. It's an, ex it's an external sign to help internally and realize of what's happening here at mass. The last thing I, I share, it's not so much an external sign, but I, I, I get this question at times and ask about Father Mark, we, you know, we notice that you don't, like, you don't look at us much during the liturgy. Like, you, you, you're, you, you're, you don't seem too friendly. Um, there's a phrase that's called, we heard about it in the seminary, it's called the custody of the eyes. The priest is supposed to practice custody of the eyes when celebrating Mass. Because the most, the, the, the Mass, the whole Mass is a prayer to the Father, Okay. And the prayers are directed to the Father. I'm not, I'm not looking at you for most of the Mass because I'm not talking to you. It's a, it's, the priest gathers the prayers of the people and presents them to the Father. Presents what to the Father? Presents the prayers and presents the sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice? The Son is the sacrifice. And so some of you may know that Mass was exclusively celebrated back in the day with the priest standing on this side of the altar. And he would face this way, and only during specific parts of the Mass would he turn around when he addressed the people and said, the Lord be with you. Or he would say, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And then you would respond, and the priest would turn back the other way and continue to the Mass, the sacrifice, the prayers to the Father. And if I looked at you all the time during the liturgy, half the times when I do look out, I, I want to laugh and like there's things going on that, that, so I practice custody of the eyes. And I look at you during the homily and I look at you the other times when the missile directs me to talk to you. 
But otherwise, it's a prayer. All of us are praying. It's a prayer to the Father. These are all external signs to help the, us internally to realize of the true presence of Jesus. And they're external signs that show that we really believe that, that it's not just a symbol, that the bread, and blood, the, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. And so maybe as we close, as we saw our first communicants come up today, and today they'll receive their second communion. Yesterday we had, had two first communions, and the boys and girls came up, and they held their hands out very carefully as the host was placed very carefully on their hands or the host was placed very carefully on their tongue and they received and they if it was if it was if the host was placed on their hand they very carefully took their two fingers and placed him on their mouth in their, in their tongue on their mouth let us as we come forward today as in we're in this week 2 of the Eucharistic revival preaching series that come forward renewed with an understanding and an appreciation and belief that ultimately Jesus is the answer to our troubled hearts and we have an opportunity to receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity here in the Eucharist.